day, I bump into African speakers and African scholars who know what is up and they're not afraid to call out the West on some of the wrong things that they're doing on the continent. One of those speakers is Brian Kagoro, who I bumped into by chance when I was listening to a speech by Dr. PLO. They were on the same panel. And when I tell you that I listened to him for a whole 45 minutes without breaking, that's what I mean. He's well-read, he's well-researched, he's a lawyer, he's lived in the continent and he's traveled abroad, so he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about when he says the West is not right in asking Africa to forget about slavery and the genocides that occurred on the continent, yet the West will not forget about the Holocaust. He's very right when he says if reparations are paid for the Holocaust, they should be paid to Africa for slavery. He's very right when he says we can say Africa is corrupt by a, an extent, yes, but we should also call the West for what they are. They use the looted resources from Africa to develop Switzerland, the most the least corrupt country in the world, developed using the loot that Abacha stole from Nigeria. You know, he's very right when he said the West cannot lecture us on democracy because on what data and what ground they used to invade Syria, Iraq, and Libya, you know. And so he is what is that? He's just a snippet of his speech. The intervention in Libya was couched in benign terms. I could give you 100 interventions where the justification, objectively speaking, was on the basis that there was evidence either of genocide or evidence. I'm sitting in Rwanda. The international community stood by as the genocide against the Tutsi happened. Yet in the same year, they were intervening in West Africa. Switzerland, which received the Abacha loot, which received the loot from the then Zaire, now DRC, has constantly been ranked in anti-corruption indices as the cleanest country in the world. PLO and I are lawyers. The receipt of stolen property is theft at law. How is it that you will have Nigeria and Kenya ranked so far, and yet the country that receives the money ranks so up? Today, Zimbabwe is paying back white commercial farmers reparations. But when you talk about any reparations, it's like the black body is not worth repair. What we must do is endure, be resilient, go forward, don't look back, trudge on. But today with the scramble of Africa that PLO was talking about, they will interfere here whether we put in place the right policies or we put in place the good governance. Why? They need the lithium. And if your right policy is not consistent with their green energy transition that they control, they will take you out. Hello guys, how are you doing? Welcome to another um, sit-down conversation. My name is Sandira Ganga. I am a business journalist by profession and I'm also a digital content creator. I make content on black people, Africa, our empowerment and how we can rise up and take our rightful place at the global stage. Today, I want us to still have a conversation around a speech by Brian Kagoro that he made when he was in Rwanda during a plenary session. We will separately upload the full speech so you guys can just, you know, soak in all of his brilliance. But, you know, he raised a very important point that we more often than not look first, you know. Um, when you talk about slavery and the genocide and atrocities that happened on the continent, first of all, it's not properly documented. There isn't a lot of history 
on the continent we know what happened but outside of the continent it's not spoken about children are not taught in school it's being erased from the minds of the of their coming up generations you know and when they come to the continent they're always preaching the message of forgive forget you know that was a long time ago we're not responsible for that and even chimamanda ngozi adichie speaks about it but when Chimamanda spoke about it, she spoke about it from it's important not to forget because these things happen. But Brian says, Brian attaches a very significant point to it. He says, it's almost like African lives do not matter and we've reduced what happened to Africans because there is legislation, like say anything pertaining anti-Semitism and see what happens to you, you know. But people can go about and continue exploiting Africa and, and, and financing war on the continent without any repercussion because we are not held in the same regard. And that's the same point that Brian is raising. We need to describe oppression. I, I, I'm sorry, uh, I hear this a lot when I come to Rwanda. Uh, you have to hear me, I'm Rwandese, so you cannot do anything about me. I have immunity here. <laughs> um, you people like to say, let's forget, let's not blame anyone. Uh, please, stop that nonsense. Uh, when the Holocaust happened against the Jews, it was 1940s, 45. Not a single African country other than Ethiopia and those who had not been colonized was free. The first African country got independent, 1957. There is not a single Jewish person who will allow you to forget the Holocaust. And it's, in fact, there are crimes, not just in Israel, across the world against denial of the Holocaust. U.S. foreign policy, Israeli foreign policy, is very key. It's a central issue. Africans, for some reason, must forget something that happened 50 years ago, if you are Zimbabwe, 80 years ago. Listen, we must always remind our friends from Europe and elsewhere that slavery was a crime against humanity, as is colonialism and neocolonialism. That killing Sankara in 1984 because you are opposed to communism and plunging his country into chaos that you are now trying to solve as a problem of poor governance is a shared responsibility. So we will take responsibility for our nakedness. But for goodness sake, for goodness sake, a, a naked emperor cannot lecture us about how to be clothed. <laughs> and I'll tell you the contradictions. When Europeans first came here, if you come to the south of continent, uh, ladies did not wear long skirts. And they did not cover their top. Then they said, no, 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 that's indecent. So we covered everything, including the head. <laughs> and then the Europeans have decided to go nude now. Now the dress code in Europe is pre-colonial Africa. And then when our kids try and dress up that way, we say it's an African. We are confused around ownership. So lastly, Chairperson, uh, the taboos. You see, Chairperson. When you want to know that these things are not taken very seriously, Brian in his speech talks about reparations where, you know, um, Paying back for your dues, you know, um, after the Holocaust, we saw some form of compensation. But on the continent, more often than not, there's no conversation about compensation. It's, it, it's always made to seem as if it was a mutually beneficial relationship. But far from it, it was not. You know, when you listen to the Western perspective, it's always, you know, we exchange ideas, we, we built infrastructure for you. 
all the things that white people did when they were on the continent was suited for what they were geared to serve their agenda you know let's say for example infrastructure when they were building the railway they didn't build the railway with the thought of africans using it for commuting no they built railways from where the natural resources were all the way to the ocean from so that they can be loaded to ships and and you know be shipped to europe and americas to you know develop these parts of the world but they make it seem as if you know we developed infrastructure for you no you did not there wasn't proper the infrastructure that you boast of was built to serve your need if even you look at roads even if you look at schools everything that they did was geared and suited to serve their interests while they were on the continent you know they took and took and took and that's why brian says it is important to have conversations around reparations you see chairperson we need to talk about global anti-black racism the treatment of African migrant laborers in the Middle East, in the Arab world, and in the Asian world, and in Europe, is a matter for the African Union to constantly pronounce itself on. And I'm glad, Chairperson, you issued a statement on George Floyd, but I'm waiting for the African Union resolution from last January on reparations. There was a formal policy of the United States government in 2015 for reparations by companies behind the Holocaust. There needs to be, the conversation on reparations is not to be settled by African political elites, right? Today, Zimbabwe is paying back white commercial farmers reparations. But when you talk about any reparations, it's like the black body is not worth repair. What we must do is endure, be resilient, go forward, don't look back, trudge on. But today, with the scramble of Africa that PLO was talking about, they will interfere here whether we put in place the right policies or we put in place the good governance. Why? They need the lithium. And if your right policy is not consistent with their green energy transition that they control, they will take you out and they will cause instability. We cannot do it as single countries. We are not uniting because it's the good thing to do. We are not uniting because it's the principal thing to do. If we don't unite, we will perish. If each one of our small countries, as economically unviable as we are, rush in order to prove distinctiveness, I'll tell you what will happen. We will be so fragmented intellectually, politically. Our institutions will have no meaning. Let me end with uh, something more positive. I think Pan-Africanism flavor is alive today. He also points out a very significant thing about the West is that one, they never work on, on data that they can bank on and two, they never take any responsibility. It is public knowledge that some Western officials have come out and say, you know what, we made a mistake in invading country A, B, C and D. We didn't work on, on concrete information. The data wasn't as spot on, you know, but that does not hold them back from invading these countries. It's like I said in a previous video, these people are always aching for war. It's like when there's no war, they're not at ease. They thrive in chaos. And I look at Libya a lot was it worth it the chaos and the destabilization that has has been brought into the country following the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi and this is not to exempt Muammar Gaddafi from all the bad things that he had done I'm just asking in the largest scheme of things 
was it worth it did it make sense to take him out of power destabilize the country was it worth it you know so there is never a lot of thought paid to this thing and it speaks to the narrative how they perceive us you know western people are incapable of thinking that africa can stay on top of its affairs that any good thing can come out of the continent that africa can have its challenges in leadership and find a way around it you know and it even goes to the way we are treated and even the way they just perceive us in general they're incapable of of just bearing the thought that anything good can come out of this continent the intervention in Iraq was couched in very benign terms. The intervention in Libya was couched in benign terms. I could give you 100 interventions where the justification, objectively speaking, was on the basis that there was evidence either of genocide or evidence. I'm sitting in Rwanda. The international community stood by as the genocide against the Tutsi happened. Yet in the same year, they were intervening in West Africa. The construct of benign and malign is controlled and related to the question of narrative and strategic self-interest. We've often not paid enough attention, and thank you, Chairperson of the African Union, for educating us on how the international fora of decision-making, the Security Council, and other fora, including at some stage, how we transact within the International Criminal uh, Court and other platforms. That evidence, and that was my point, we don't control data, we don't control digital platforms, we therefore are not controlling narrative in both analog and digital forms. What can practically be done? We do need to speak to Europeans, not as victims, because the erasure of the contribution in European consciousness of Africans to modernity and civility has constructed a white supremacist view that sees the evolution of modernity as a singularly European contribution. And it is only now that our young researchers are beginning to excavate the contributions of black people, of Africans, towards inventions. Because until now, the province of economy was not the province of black people. In my country, in Zimbabwe, when land was taken, a British court gave a judgment that said, the question before them and who owned the land, they said, one thing is certain. It cannot be the native because the native has no sense of ownership. It was on that basis that land was taken. Number two, on the question of economics, even we pejoratively only talk about our people as informal law, informal economy, inform yet the informal economy is formal. That's how India developed through its cottage industry. That's how. We have a psychotic addiction to colonial definitions of what, and that's why Professor Ashraf is correct. It's not just a narrative about our contribution historically. It's a narrative about our contribution now. Our young people who developed Mpesa, which is now being used globally, who developed Ushaidi, which has been used by over 300,000 organizations, including the Japanese, the US military, and the NATO forces, are never sufficiently credited. Why? Because it is not in the current psyche of most Europeans possible 
that Africans are anything else except the object of charity that deserve our mercy and our pity. Why? Because they are by, governed by tyrants. And while we are made to think and believe that we are the villains of the story, in all honesty, we are not. You know, the West has mastered the art of sanctifying themselves, washing themselves clean. Switzerland is the least corrupt country in the world. Well, their bachelor was in Switzerland and it was used to develop that country. That's true. When African leaders steal money from the continent, they ship it to offshore accounts in some of these countries. They use it to buy houses, they use it to buy your luxury cars. So then you're okay using that money, taking that money, developing your economy, but but you want to wash your hands and say, oh no, we're clean. We're, no, 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 you are complices, honey. You're just as corrupt as the person that stole the money because you're enabling it. If these people stole money and they had nowhere to keep it, they had nothing to do with it, then it wouldn't, it would disincentivize people from, you know, being corrupt. Because, I mean, I can burn money on a house in America and London because those houses cost millions of dollars and it's easy to dispose of that cash. I can buy luxury cars because it's easy to dispose of that cash. I can buy luxury watches. But if you say, if your big businesses today say, we're not going to do business with corrupt individuals, if you're going to buy anything from us, we need to see a proof Prove that this money is yours and it's clean money. You'll disincentivize many people from stealing money because why would you steal if you can't use that money? But no, you want that money to build the economy. Honey, cross over the line. You're not the least corrupt country. If anything, you're standing next to the most corrupt country in the world. Right? All Africans are incapable of ethics. And we've constantly said that Switzerland, which received their bacha loot, which received the loot from the then Zaire and now DRC, has constantly been ranked in anti-corruption indices as the cleanest country in the world. PLO and I are lawyers. The receipt of stolen property is theft at law. How is it that you will have Nigeria and Kenya ranked so far, and yet the country that receives the money ranks so up? I, I think that if you're changing narrative, you also have to change behavior. Our African leaders and citizens constantly confirm the European caricature, mm. an object of pity. When we come into these spaces, we, I, we can never transact resolution, revolution in courtesy. I like to be civil, to be courteous, right? But each time I start pointing to atrocities committed by African governments, the Europeans and the Americans cheer me up. Each time I refer to the historical atrocities and continuing atrocities, committed first by governments and by companies that are dumping cyanide into our underground water and nuclear waste, right? You know what it is said? This is retrogressive. It's uh, undermining investment. It's again, listen, we cannot win the narrative battle by arguing in pockets. They are happy us talking about our localized indigenized oppression. They are never happy us talking about the question of distribution and redistribution of the global economy of global power. And what Nkrumah and others realized in 1963 at the founding conference, if Africa is not represented, if Africa does not own its narrative, but you can't own your narrative if your leadership is totally disconnected from its people. Mm -hmm. You can't own your narrative if your intellectuals are totally disconnected. We have underinvested in rural areas and slums where the majority of our people are. In fact, we treat them as security threats and they are over-policed. 
Number two, we have underinvested in our academic and research institution. We'd rather bring McKinsey and bring Deloitte in touch. They will help us do AU reform. Why? Because there are no African consultancies that we know, even if they exist, we have no relationship with them to help us with AU reforms, with anything else. And I'm not, this is not a pronouncement on McKinsey or Deloitte. It's a pronouncement on ourselves. We have not, as a leadership, begun to recognize that the native is capable of knowledge. The native is capable of economy. The native is capable of invention. You can't change the narrative if the starting premise is we're trying to be like Europe and to catch up. I think in conclusion, and I like that he did this, is he gives solutions. You know, Africans need to be in charge of their own narrative and Africa needs to take advantage of the new digital wave that is coming up, you know. Take, take advantage of it, position yourself, mainstream your story, mainstream your culture, mainstream your art, mainstream your intelligence, mainstream your talent, mainstream your labor, you know. Um, Bannerboy just sold out a concert in the UK, 80,000 people. That's African art, you know, and it should be celebrated and we need to see a lot more of that. That's what the continent is capable of. He's just one example, you know, but in art and there's so many brilliant Africans all over the continent and it's just time that we start enabling them to shine on the global stage. I want to suggest to you, one of the most revolutionary things that uh, the African Union, under the leadership of the, the chairperson here, has done, is to talk about arts, culture, and heritage, not as entertainment, not as add-on, but as part of imagining the future economy, is to talk about the digital, not as part of little things you do, but as part of building the economy. All that's left now is how do we defend African art, culture, and heritage, not only in Africa, but globally. How do we make sure it is the mainstream of AFCFTA along with all the other big things we do? And how do we, in the digital economy, make sure we are not consumers of products that are produced elsewhere and not part of the production chain. Okay. If we do that, our Pan-Africanism is economic, our Pan-Africanism is cultural, our Pan-Africanism is intellectual, our Pan-Africanism is also spiritual. Just remember what Chinu Achebe said. We are not the children of Africa. We are the parents of Africa, because the Africa that we want is yet to be born. And we are the ones that history has charged with the responsibility to give, back, to give birth to the Africa we want. So whatever we are frustrated with, with respect to the African Union, our responsibility is how do we make the normative frameworks and the institutions work, but how do we build the repository of expertise so that the African Union at any given time has access to the best brains, the best technical expertise in any field on the continent. Well guys, thank you very much for watching. My name is Indira Ganga. Let me know what you think. Comment down below if you'd like to see the full speech of Brian. We will be uploading it also without me rambling and giving you my opinion so you can just take it all in. Um, remember to comment down below what you think, share this video and like it. I'll see you again next time.